This week, as, uh, as you know, is Holy Week. That is, it refers to this Sunday, Palm Sunday, uh, when we celebrate and remember the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Proceeds on, and he celebrates a meal with his disciples, um, the meal that is called Passover. Um, and then after that, he is arrested, and on Friday, crucified. And then, and then we know what Easter is. But we get to this week, and we so often just want to run to Easter. And I think it, it behooves us, and I want to encourage you to come Friday night at 7 o'clock for our Good Friday service. Because unless you walk through the valley, you don't feel the joy. You don't know and experience the joy of Easter. Um, in the New Testament, as it tells us about this Holy Week, it is paralleled by the Old Testament event of the Exodus, where Passover is first uh, commemorated, first happens and then is commemorated. And so there are a lot of themes through Exodus that you have to get in order to fully appreciate what happens this week as we remember Jesus and and what happens as he comes and fulfills that. And so we're going to continue today looking at this story from Exodus, and a quick recap of where we are is... Just like Jesus came doing many miracles and then comes in triumphantly to celebrate the beginning of Passover, Uh, so Moses has come to Egypt, to Pharaoh. Ten plagues have happened, culminating in the Passover sacrifice, which um, we will remember and and celebrate later in the week. Um, And what it demonstrates is that Pharaoh has failed. Remember last week, his job, Pharaoh... The, the divine representative of, of Ra, who is to ride his barge through the day on the sun and then in the underworld at night. Through him, all things are maintained and order is brought. And the confrontation with God through Moses demonstrates that, in fact, Pharaoh is not the one who orders the universe, or even Egypt, for that matter. And so he is lost and he has failed, and he finally gets to the point after the final plague, the Passover, when all the firstborn die, is uh, he says, fine, leave, go, Moses, take your people and get out of here. And in fact, tells them, go to the people and take money and livestock, just ask them and they'll give it to you. And so they leave with a great amount of wealth and a great amount of livestock, and we're told that 600,000 men plus women and children leave Egypt on their journey out. And sprinkled throughout chapters 12 and 13 in 12, 26, 13, 8, and 13, 14 is this instruction. When your children ask you why it is you celebrate this Passover sacrifice, tell them what the Lord has done for you coming out of Egypt and how he has saved you. Right? And, and it's instituted every year because we tend to forget things so that we remember what is happening. And so clearly, that rescuing by God is critically important for Israel and for their children. And God leads them out of Egypt by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. Now, I've got to show you this video just cause, partly because it's too cool, and partly I hope it captures your attention. So um, this was on Lookout Mountain this week. My mom took this video during the tornadoes and lightning. So I'm not sure if you can see that very well. It was a hollowed out tree that got hit by lightning and it's on fire all the way through the core of it, burning and smoke coming out the top of the tree. 
it's pretty amazing. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. I was like, whoa, I had to watch the video again and again. In fact, the first picture my mom sent didn't have the fire. She just took a picture of the tree in the rain. I'm like, nice tree. She's like, don't you see the smoke? And I'm like, no. So then she does that. And I'm like, whoa. And I hope that 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 sense of awe, that feeling of amazement, gives you just a little taste of what it must have been like to follow a pillar of fire. So pick up with me. Let's read the story, the text here. Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 19 through 1420. This is the word of God. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, turn back and encamp near Pihahirith, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariots made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians all... Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pihaharath, opposite of Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. 
Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word, which is relevant and true for us today, even as it has been for thousands of years. Use it to convict us, to shape our life, so we might follow in your ways. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the things I missed during last year of COVID was the great summer blockbuster movies. And it reminded me as I was preparing this uh, sermon, thinking about one of those great blockbuster summer movies, Independence Day with Will Smith. I mean, it's like a thousand years old now, but, you know, it was way back in the day when Will was young and had hair and stuff like that. Um, And it was this great movie about an alien invasion on Earth and what's going to happen. And they had to repel the forces of the aliens. And it wasn't just America. It was all the countries of the world trying to fight against the aliens, figure it out. And the Americans figure it out. And in any ways, they defeat the alien invasion. And they restore freedom. And in all the great cities around the world, the people are rejoicing and cheering, yes! And they're celebrating because it's a new day on Earth. It's their new day, their new Independence Day. In chapter 12, verse 2, which was just before what we read, we are told that the Lord says to Moses that this month is to be the first month of your year. In other words, it is to be your new year, your independence day. And yet, as Americans, we love freedom and we love independence. And so we hear those words and we're like, yes, independence day, that's what we need. But I wonder if our ideas of freedom and independence get imposed upon what God's meaning of freedom is. The text invites us to to ask all kinds of questions. Like, they're getting freed, right? And we just read it, and you you can kind of hear, are are they rejoicing? Uh Uh-huh. Are they scared? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what does freedom mean for them? What does that look like? Are they secure? Are they safe? Freedom from what and freedom for what? And yet they are free. And I think one of the things that we see in this text that I want us to think about a little bit today is this. What I'm suggesting to you is that God repeatedly gives us opportunities to freely depend on him. In other words, one of the things that God does for us as Christians is says, here's your day. It's called Dependence Day. And yet it's freeing. And so what is the nature of that? What does that look like and feel like? So I want to talk to you about this dependence upon God. And I want to say to you that dependence upon God is where you find genuine freedom. It's where you find genuine security. And it's where you find genuine responsibility. Dependence upon God is where you find genuine freedom first. It's where you find genuine freedom, not autonomy. And we'll talk about that just in a second. But notice what happens here in the text, right? They're free. They get to walk out of Egypt. They're given money and goods and livestock and cattle, and and they go. They're free from oppression. They're free from slavery. And this is, in fact, a very good thing. Because oppression is not good. Slavery is not a good thing. It's an evil thing. And so they are free from it. People were not created to be defined as slaves, valued only for their production, and abused as less than human. 
it is good that they are freed. But free to what? Free to be autonomous? Because I think in America, that's how we think about freedom a lot. Autonomous, the very word means self-rule or a law unto oneself. Um, And so in terms of society, that is a good thing, right? It means the people rule and the people get representatives to govern themselves how they should be governed and feel like that's a good thing to do, right? And so that's what we do. But as individuals, to have such autonomy as an individual, such self-rule is actually to go against what Scripture is saying, that we should be dependent upon God. In fact, if you really wanted autonomy as an individual, the only way I can think of that you could achieve it is to be like Tom Hanks living on an island and your only companion, a volleyball named Wilson. Like, then you're, yeah, rule yourself because you got nobody else to interact with. That's how you can be completely autonomous. Otherwise, you live in community and society of people the way God designed us to, and you can't be completely autonomous. People are designed to be dependent upon God. God frees them from evil oppression, but for what? He frees them from evil oppression in order to listen to God's voice, to live in the light of his goodness and reflect that goodness to others in society. That's what he's asking them to do. The same thing he wanted Adam and Eve to do in the garden. God frees us from the power of Satan and from the power of sin, not its presence, like we battle with it, but God breaks power so that we can overcome through many hardships, many trials, many vulnerable, honest conversations. But he breaks that, frees us from it, so that we can live the way we're created and designed to live. People are not designed to be completely autonomous and free. We are designed to live in community. But you say to me, some of you may say, let me be free to do what I want to do. I get that, I hear that, I think that myself so many times, and and our society says that all the time. No, you do you, and let me do me, right? That's our freedom that we think about. And so you may hear that and think, man, the church and religion should not dictate what people do. You might think biblical values are too restrictive. Okay, you could say that. But I want to suggest to you the alternative. Look at society today. What do I mean by that? Studies show that Christianity has fallen dramatically since the late 90s, okay? Um, It's due to the rise of the so-called nuns, those that have no belief, maybe atheists or not, but the nuns, just they don't don't align themselves with with any particular religion. And so it's fallen by some 20 percentage points since the late 90s. We have become less religious as a society— and I submit to you, more polarized. And you might say, well, that's true. Anytime you're going to bring more, more, uh, more diversity into society, right? When you don't have one group that maybe is dominant, maybe you're going to have more, more, more polarization. Okay, so fine, maybe you have that. And yet, here's what happens. If your objection is Christianity has too many rules, too many values, and it's too restrictive, and it's too oppressive, we don't want to live by that, then ask yourself, what's going on in culture today where we've suppressed all that and said, no, are we totally autonomous and free? I don't think so. Hashtag cancel culture. 
we have a new religion unto itself. Right? I mean, think about it this way. We, we're less religious in a way, and yet everybody still has a set of ideas and values that they cling to, and they assign ultimate value to those things. They're willing to go to great lengths, even becoming zealots, to make sure that those things happen, and cancel culture of public outrage and shame. I mean, it's, it's like a religion unto itself. I mean, so cancel culture has led to the point where Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head are no longer acceptable. You have to get rid of those. And that's more free? What I'm saying is this. You cannot be truly free. Everybody has a set of values and ideas and morals according to which they are going to live by. I'm saying, and I think what the Scripture is telling us here, is God is saying, yes, I am freeing you, but I'm freeing you for something for dependence on me because it's I'm the one who created you. I'm the one who knows you best. I'm the one you need to shape your life toward. The cancel culture of its own religion that makes moral assertions of what is right and wrong that shames you into conformity and requires allegiance. The cancel culture that offers hope in a utopian kind of promised land if we can just overturn fill in the blank. It is a religion unto itself. When you move God out, it doesn't eliminate that. You just replace it with something else. J.D. Greer, uh, pastor of a big church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I think he's currently the leader, president, whatever you call him, of the Southern Baptists, tweeted this week this. He said, it's amazing to me how many Christians who rail against hashtag cancel, cancel culture have canceled their church membership over disagreement with their church leaders this past year over things that, compared to the gospel, will probably seem rather insignificant in light of eternity. See, we cannot stop making moral judgments, decisions, calling right and wrong. The only difference is who gets to define it. And God frees you from bearing that responsibility and says, no, I'm the one who decides right and wrong. And actually, if you'll submit to it, it will make life work the way it's supposed to work for you, the way I've designed it to. Now, there's always the entanglement of sin that comes into there and so forth, but that, that is, dependence on God, is where you find genuine freedom. So the people of Israel here in this text, right, they're impressed by Moses. He comes in, and he, as God's representative, he does the ten plagues. I'm like, whoa, whoa, wow, amazing. All right, let's leave. Follow me. Okay, let's go. And they follow him, right? And they're off on their way. And they're like, this is fantastic. I love this independence. And they follow Moses, and they leave the Nile, and they leave the green pastures, and they get in the desert. And then what? And they're like, I don't know if I like this independence. Because I don't have a lot of the stuff I used to have. Although I don't have some of the stuff I used to have either, which is good. Which leads to our next lesson, and it's this. Dependence upon God is where you find genuine security, though not predictability. Dependence on God is where you find genuine security, though not predictability. They have their independence, but they're terrified. Put verse 10 on the screen for me. I mean, I want you to remember this, right? This is what we read this. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. Oh, no! There's the Egyptians! And they're terrified, and they cry, and they cry out to the Lord. They're, 
They're terrified. I don't know what to make of that, except to say they're human, and I probably would have done the same thing. I mean, if you just saw all the plagues and everything, and then darkness over the land, and then firstborn die, and they say, leave, I'm like, I'm with God. Who's going to stop him? But then, then not just a day or two later, you get out here, and you're like, oh, no, I'm terrified again. Is that not us? I mean, that's the way we are as humans. The triumphal entry with Jesus, right? Everybody's like, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're waving their palm fronds. And just a few days later, what are they doing? Nah, let's go back to our old way. Crucify him. And here they're like, I don't know, we're scared again. In verse 12, put that verse on the screen. They're willing to give up their independence in exchange for predictability. What are they saying? Didn't we say, just leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. What are they valuing? We want to live, and while Egypt was a place of suffering, at least it was known and predictable. Now, nothing's known. Who knows what's going to happen? The army's there, the sea's there, we're stuck. Oh no. And they're willing to trade their freedom and their following God for predictability back in Egypt. But God always uses this unpredictability to develop within us a deeper level of trust. John Calvin, who's probably been canceled by now too, wrote this. um, Now the Israelites, when though preserved by God's hand, they reject as much as possible his proffered grace are an example to us how many repeated salvations are necessary for us in order that God may bring us to, quote, perfect salvation. Because by our ingratitude, we nullify whatever he has given us and thus would willfully perish if God did not correct our apathy by the power of his spirit. What is he saying? He's saying it is the nature of people in Moses' day, and it's the nature of people in his day. It's the nature of people in our day to to just turn away from God's grace and go, well, it was good for a while, but it's not working anymore. And he's saying that's what we would do if God did not, with his spirit, invade and come and correct our apathy and say, no, this dependence on God is exactly what we need questions that we should ask ourselves are, do I find genuine security in God amidst COVID? Do I find my security in something else? Many of you have lost jobs over the past year. It knocks you down, not only from a financial standpoint, but from a confidence standpoint. Does it cause you to lean into God for your security? Or maybe you think, forget God, I'm going back to Egypt. We are planting a church. It can feel kind of unsecure and rather costly. It's not totally predictable, but it is what God is calling us to do. It's what lies before us, and and it might even feel like we're walking out into the desert rather than keeping the security of what we're used to. But I can't wait to see how God will work in those ways. Like the Israelites, pinched between an army and the sea. I don't know. What are we going to do? 
God says, I'll show you what we're going to do. Let's move water. It leads to this final point. Dependence upon God is where you find genuine responsibility. Dependence upon God is where you find genuine responsibility. It is not irresponsibility, okay? Dependency requires trust, right? If you're going to depend on something, if I'm going to sit down on a chair and I depend on it, I trust that chair is going to hold me and not collapse. In relationships, dependency means it requires trust in your relationship. If I'm going to lean on you and depend on you as husband and wife should do, it requires trust. But it also requires action. I want, I'm submitting to you this word, responsive dependency. Responsive dependency. What does that look like? We see it in verses 13 and 14. Will you put those on the screen for me, please? There we go. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So there it is. Responsive dependency. You're saying, what? It just says be still. Yeah, but be still is something you do. What is it that I do? I do nothing, right? Not exactly. The word still, to be still, refers to a stillness of soul, a quietness of the soul, not anxiousness. It does not mean being inactive, though at times it may mean you don't do anything right at that moment. It is consciously waiting and watching for the Lord's leading consciously and watching and waiting for the Lord's leading. And that's being still. Or look at it in verse 16. Let's put that one on the screen. Here's Moses, right? Two verses later, and God says to him, raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. And notice what's happening here. He's just told them, you need not do anything, but be still and see what God does. And so then God, through Moses, right, as he was God to Pharaoh, comes and extends that staff that signals the power of God over the waters. And they watch him. What do they do? Nothing. God parts the sea. A wind drives it through the night in, in, uh, in east wind and, and dries it up so that they can do what? So they can go through on dry ground. But you said, be still. We're not moving. No, that's not what stillness is. That's not what stillness is. You see, because stillness is the quietness of the soul to listen to the voice of God rather than all the other voices in your head and the armies that are out there and that's that's over there and says, no, God is here. And he says, go that way. And they then have to be responsive and act walking through what used to be a sea, which couldn't have been real easy to do for them. But that was their act of faith. They respond accordingly. They act in faith. They're spared from death. That's the experience that we talked about last week of knowing God. That word to know is not just intellectual. It's experiential to know God. As I was uh, working on my sermon early this morning, finishing it up, I was listening to a playlist, uh, Carrie Underwood playlist, My Savior, which is awesome, by the way. Um, And Jesus, take the wheel, comes on, right? Jesus, take the wheel. And then one of the lines in there that's repeated is, save me from this road I'm on. Save me from this road I'm on. And it kind of begs the question, what road are you on? 
And usually when you're on a road, it's a road you've put yourself on. Not always. Sometimes circumstances of life, tornadoes, whatever it is, they hit you and they put you on a different road. And you're like, how did I get here? What happened? But nevertheless, it's a road you're on. It's a song crying out for rescue. Jesus, take the wheel, giving up control to God. It's an act of faith. Listening and watching for his guidance and direction is an act of dependent trust. And then comes another act of faith, going in the direction he shows you. Whether that's the seas parted and you walk through on dry ground, whatever that may be the next door that he seems to open in your life. What road have you driven down or do you find yourself on? It might be the path of addiction or destruction or self-harm. It might be the path of shame and depression. It might be the path of pleasure and predictability that make you feel good for the moment, for a little while. Maybe it's the path of the algorithms of social media that have you responding like a Pavlovian dog. Yes, give me more, give me more, give me more. Just to waste a little more time so that you can be irresponsible rather than responsibly acting in faith. Maybe it's your financial security or your physical safety that has become so acute to you and so important that it has attained godlike status. Your whole life, your whole life is one of leaning into a relationship of dependence on God, whether it's walking in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve walked with God, or in the wilderness, where Israel is walking with God. Both happen in life. It's truly a lifelong adventure. We walk, we grow weary, and just when it seems like there's no solution, no way out, we're trapped, the water parts, and God says, go that way. You're on dry ground, and once again, you are in awe, and you walk by faith and not by sight. I spoke to a man in our congregation, one of our members this week, battling cancer. His doctor told him it's time to enjoy time with his family and to write the final chapter of his life, of his story. He looked into my eyes and said to me, Andrew, if I die, I win. If I live, I win. It's a win-win situation. That's someone who is depending on the Lord for his genuine freedom, his genuine security, and with genuine responsibility. Will you depend on the Lord and trust his story? Father in heaven, I pray that you will help us to take your words to heart, that those things that have been spoken, which are from you, would stick deeply within people. If there's anything I spoke in error, that you would remove that from their minds. And Lord, would you work in mighty and powerful ways in our lives this week, this holy week, that we would look at the cross, that we would see the valley before we see the stars. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.